Father, we, we come as your people this morning, and we eagerly anticipate what you would communicate to us through 1 John chapter 2. Uh, we know that there are things that we need to hear, uh, truths that we need to believe, changes that need to be made in us, and uh, Lord, we ask that you would just be working in us. So we ask that your spirit would work, be making the changes in us, help us to hear, help us to understand, help us to obey, help us to change. And Lord, I want to pray um, specifically for those in this room uh, who feel guilty and ashamed as they think about standing before you. Lord, may they hear the great news of the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our third week in our summer series on 1 John. Last week, we looked at a few verses, the second half of the first chapter of 1 John. And basically, we, we asked the question, what do we do with our sin? That's not the only time we're going to ask that question in this series. As I've said, John's letter is very circular. He keeps coming back to the same ideas over and over again. So multiple times we'll see the, the idea of abiding in Christ. Uh, we'll see the ideas of love and of life. And uh, what was the fourth one? Light. Love, light, and life. Those go around and around and around and around inside the book of John. So... Uh, if after last week you're not particularly sure what to do when you've sinned, we'll get back to it later on in John. But here's the refresher. Basically, in those last few verses of John, we saw that there are three main options for what we do when we sin. We can cover, we can uh, cancel, or we can confess. The idea of covering our sin is we try to hide it, try to keep other people from finding out, we try to keep God from finding out. Now that is a silly idea. If you believe the Bible, then you know that God is all-knowing. He knows everything, even the things about you that you don't know, He knows them. And to think that we can hide our sin from Him, to cover it, is, is a silly idea. But every one of us in this room has tried it, and maybe even in the last few minutes, we do it all the time. We try to hide from God. The second thing is the idea of canceling our sin. And this is not so much getting rid of it, but trying to call it something that it's not. So we would, we would argue with God. We would say, God, you have called this sin. I don't think it's sin for me. I'm going to redefine it. I, maybe it's actually good for me. It's something to celebrate. This is something that we see a lot in our, in our culture today. We, we cover our sin. We try to cancel or, or redefine our sin. And John, in the letter of 1 John, says, no, really, what you need to do is confess your sin. You need to come to God, and confess is the idea of agreeing with, speaking alongside with what somebody else is saying. So when we confess our sin, we come to God, we say, I am a sinner, I'm sinned in this way, Lord, I confess this to you. And we read these last few verses in 1 John we saw these three things in it, and I would just want to read them to you right now as a refresher. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, that is, we try to cover our sin, we deceive ourselves. Notice we don't deceive God. We may trick some people, but in general, everybody knows that we are sinners. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, that is, we try to cancel and redefine it, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's how we ended last week. Now, there's a chapter break in your Bible. That chapter break is artificial. 
chapters, verses, none of that belonged in the original writings of the, of the Scriptures. Those are put in later in order to help us find our way around, locate things. But what we see in the first part of chapter 2 is really just a continuation of the ending thoughts of chapter 1. They just kind of slide right into the next one. So what I want to do here is, is read to you. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole first six verses, even though we're not going to touch on all of them this week. They'll get into your head. We're actually all going to make it through the first two verses this week because of the change. But I'm going to read the whole section to you right now. 1 John 2, 1 through 6. If you're following along in a pew Bible, you can find it on page 1021. John says this to the people around Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, by extension to us. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. Truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word in Him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. We'll deal with uh, 3 through 6 next week. Today we're going to deal with 1 through 2. Now, remember, we've got this visual that we're going, coming back to over over again in First John. It's the idea of a pendulum swinging from invitation to challenge and back to invitation and challenge. Throughout the Bible, God swings this pendulum back and forth with His people. He invites us into relationship with Him. He, he welcomes us, rebellious as we are. He loves us. He cares for us. He forgives us. That's the invitation side of that pendulum. And then the other side, the challenge, He calls us to holiness. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to hard things. Uh, he, he says things that hurt us for our own good. Invitation, challenge. Invitation, challenge. Sometimes that pendulum can swing back and forth inside a single verse which is what we see here in chapter 2, verse 1. Notice how it starts. John says this. He says, My little children. This is all invitation. John loves these people, and by extension, he loves us as little children. Now, this is a little bit ironic because John was the youngest of those 12 disciples. Like everybody else looked at John as the little child probably at certain times. And now he, in his old age, at the time that he's writing this, he's, he might be the only one that's left of the original 12. In his old age, with this fatherly love and disposition, he writes to the people around Ephesus and then by extension to us, and he says, my little children. And it's almost like it's a grandpa bringing his grandkids up on his knees and saying, I love you my grandkids. That's the idea here. But then he swings the pendulum back. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And we say, what? He's got a purpose. He's writing with a purpose. He tells us what that purpose is, that we may not sin. Now that has just swung the pendulum all the way over to the extreme of the challenge side. How in the world can John say to his original readers and to us, 
my little children, I am writing that you may not sin. Is he detached from reality? We just, we just talked about last week how none of us can be without sin. I talked about the crazy guy in Greenville that I met that's part of the cult, and he says he hasn't, hasn't sinned in 13 years, even in his thoughts, and how deceived he is. And yet here John, best buddy of Jesus, writer of the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, one of the 12 apostles, he just said, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. And we have to think, what is going on here? How can he make that kind of a challenge? How can he raise that standard so high? We must be misunderstanding, right? There's no way he could expect that of us. Is he really saying, be perfect, be sinless from this point forward? Is that a goal that we can accomplish? It is not. And if we go back just a few verses, we know that John thinks that this is impossible for us because he has told us what to do when we sin. When we sin, we are to confess, and God is faithful and just, and he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If he thought we could accomplish verse 1 of chapter 2, then he wouldn't have to do those few verses beforehand. But he knows we can't do it. And yet he lays that out as a challenge, as a goal for us. Do not write this off as just a, an unrealistic thing and, and so you don't even have to try. Because every one of us in this room Everyone who's listening online or will listen later, we all take sin not nearly as seriously as we should. We don't, we don't take it seriously enough. We think of sin like a cute cat that we meet on a walk. You guys have probably experienced something like, unless you're a real cat hater, you don't want anything to do with them, but you've probably experienced something like this. You're, you're going on a walk, it's a nice sunny day, and up ahead, one of your neighbor's cats is laying in the sun, enjoying the warmth. And as you approach, the cat kind of rolls over on its belly so he can scratch his belly and invites you to express affection to the cute little cat, right? And so you rub the cat, and the cat starts purring, and maybe the cat licks your hand. And then out of nowhere, for no reason at all, the, the demon comes into the cat reaches out, scratches you, hisses you, jumps up, furs up, ready to fight. Like, what is wrong with you, cat? Right? We've all experienced or watched somebody experience that with a cat. Cats can't be trusted, right? We think of cat, we think of sin as a cute cat, and we can control it, and maybe it's going to reach out and scratch us, but we'll keep it at arm's distance, if it gets too out of hand, we'll control it, we'll walk away, but it's cute and I want to be with it. When really we should be thinking of sin like this animal as a grizzly bear. Last, this week, uh, a woman was camped in a small town in Montana. Uh, she's actually camped in town because she's on a multi-day bicycle trip and they allow bicyclists to camp right next to the post office in town. At 3.30 in the morning, while she is asleep, a grizzly bear reaches in, rips her out of her tent, and kills her. That's how we need to think about sin. It's not the cute, cuddly cat 
that maybe if it gets a little out of hand, we can push away and take control of the situation. It is a wild animal, much larger than we are, intent on eating us as we sleep. That's what sin is in the Bible. It is intent on destroying us. And we don't, we don't flirt with it. We don't think, oh, it's cute and cuddly, and we don't try to keep control of it. We should avoid it. We should shoot it. We should spray it with bear spray. We should not have food inside of our tent. Things like that, right? It is a threat, and it's trying to destroy us. Jonathan Owen was a guy who lived in the 1600s. He was an English theologian and a, one of the Puritans, and he said this, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. It's one of his most famous quotes. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. It's the idea that sin is your enemy. It is intent on destroying you. Even if you think it's cute and cuddly like the cat, its role is to eat you while you sleep. So either you're fighting against it, either you're killing it, or it is trying to kill you. That's how seriously we are to take sin. Now, parents, you know this, because if your five-year-old son came to you and said, Daddy, I want to play with the chainsaw, you would say no. In fact, you would put in rules that would say, if you touch the chainsaw, you're getting spanked, or you're getting grounded, or I'm giving your dessert to your sister, or whatever it is, right? Because as as much as your son wants to play with the chainsaw, you know that the chainsaw is dangerous, it will harm him, and quite possibly could kill him. So when John says to us, my little children, I'm writing this so that you may not sin, he's doing it with that same kind of fatherly love. He knows that sin is trying to destroy us, and he's warning us against it. It's not something to play with. He goes on. Here's our main thought. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So just like before the challenge, now after the challenge, John recognizes we're not going to be able to do this. So what do we do with our sin? Well, before he tells us, we confess our sin, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us all in righteousness. After the challenge, he says, but if you do sin, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What is he talking about here? Advocate is a legal term. It's the idea of a lawyer, specifically a defense attorney. Now, we don't have many of these billboards in the Dark County area, but if you go into any major city, like just drive into Dayton or especially into Cincinnati, there are dozens of billboards for defense attorneys that are promising to get you off the hook, right? They're they're right in line with all of the uh, personal injury and and work injury lawyers, right? The defense attorney's job is to get you off the hook. Prosecuting attorney... Is trying to get you convicted, get you sent in jail. The defense attorney is trying to convince the judge or the jury that you are innocent and should be set free. Now, the defense attorney doesn't really care if you are innocent. His job or her job is simply to convince, maybe even manipulate the law to convince the judge or the jury to let you go. But Jesus is very different than that. 
Jesus is a good defense attorney. And he stands before the Father, who is the judge of the universe, and he stands as your advocate, as your attorney. Don't think that that means that Jesus is standing before God, and you don't picture God with one of the crazy wigs on for the judges, right? So Jesus is standing before God the Father, and he's saying, Oh, Father, righteous judge, here is Nick Dimmick. You've heard that he's a terrible sinner. He's not really that bad. You've heard about all these things that he's done. He's not as bad as other people. He's tried really hard. You should just let him go. That is not what Jesus is doing at all as an advocate. He's not trying to like twist the father up by manipulating the laws that the father has given. You know, Nick has done this and then he's done this, but you said this and around that corner and he's not doing that at all. Jesus stands before the father and he says Nick Dimmick is guilty as charged. In fact, father, he's much worse than the charges that we have summarized here. I know this man so well that even right now, as I'm advocating for him, he is plotting his future sinful life. If you give him any rope, any freedom at all, he is going to rebel against you. That's the truth. You say, well, that sounds like a pretty bad lawyer. Well, then your advocate goes on and says, but I want to take his place. He is guilty. He deserves punishment. He's going to do some serious time. But Father, let that fall on me and let the guilty man go free. Now that doesn't happen in our world. But that is what Jesus has done and continues to do for us. If you are a Christian, that is, you have been born again in Christ, your old life is dead, your new life has been given to you as a gift, you belong to the family of God, then you have an advocate before the righteous judge who not just tries to get you off the hook, but actually takes your punishment upon himself. As crazy and ridiculous and otherworldly as that sounds. That is the reality of the gospel message, and that is what John is talking about here when he says, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it's, it's almost like he puts an exclamation point on there. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Yeah, he's going to take your punishment for you, even though he doesn't deserve it at all. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly good. He lived that perfect life that you and I were supposed to, that kind of perfect obedience that John says, little children, I write to you so you may not sin. Jesus is the only one that's been able to do that. And yet he takes that punishment on himself. If you've been part of this church for a long time, You know that almost every Sunday, I try to get across to you the point of the gospel. That we are sinners, that we are lost, that we cannot earn our salvation, we can't get forgiveness, we can't get right with God by anything that we do. None of us can do it. That's the bad news. But the good news of the gospel is, Jesus Christ has made the way so that we can be reconciled to God, not by our own works, not by our own goodness, but by trusting in Him the sacrifice that he made. We see that all throughout the scriptures, and even in this verse, just in this idea that that Jesus is our advocate, 
That can't be true unless that gospel message is true. Maybe you've been resisting that. Maybe you've heard it now a hundred times and you're like, that's a nice story. I'm just not buying it. What better offer do you have? What are you holding out for? Every other religion in the world says, do well enough, perform well enough, know the secret knowledge, pray the prayers, you know, starve yourself in the desert, whatever it is, and then you can be accepted by God or the gods, the goddesses, whatever, it is, whatever that religion says. Every religion basically says, perform well enough and maybe you'll get in. Jesus, our advocate, stands before the righteous judge and says, this man, this woman is hopeless, cannot perform well enough, I take the punishment for him or her. What holds you back from surrendering your life to your advocate today? What better offer are you waiting for? This is the heart of the gospel. And while our passage today has a couple theological terms in there, like the idea of advocate and propitiation, I want to throw a few more out for you. Um, young ones, you can impress your teachers at school this next year if you learn these words, right? Penal substitutionary atonement. And you're writing, writing these down, hopefully, right? Penal, the idea of penalty, okay? You do something wrong, you deserve a penalty, a punishment. Substitutionary means in your place. When we're talking about Jesus, Jesus takes the punishment that you deserve He takes your place, takes your punishment. Atonement is the idea of making a sacrifice that that fixes a broken relationship. Specifically, we're talking about the brokenness between us and our perfect Heavenly Father who expects us to be perfect. When we put these words together, we get the heart of the gospel. Jesus, the perfect one, substituted Himself for us took our penalty, died as a sacrifice to make atonement so that we can be reconciled to God the Father. If you remove this idea of penal substitutionary atonement, you have no gospel left. You have no Christianity left. Now, there are thousands of churches, even just in the United States, that are trying to ignore and get rid of the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. They say it's, it's barbaric. The idea that someone would have to die for you, it's like the Old Testament with the animals dying and the sacrifices is just yucky and we don't want to have anything to do with that. We're not going to talk about that. Instead, we're going to talk about Jesus as a good teacher, as a moral man, as a social revolutionary, as a, as a guy who's trying to reinvent the world as a better place. And when you do that, you have destroyed the message of the gospel. You have destroyed Christianity. You've you've taken yourself outside of Christianity. The the core, the, the heartbeat of Christianity is this idea of penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus taking the price, paying the price, taking being the sacrifice for you so you can be reconciled to God. Do you believe that? Are you trusting in that? Are you trusting in your own goodness, your own intellect, your own 
fact that you're better than other people around you? Or are you trusting only in that substitutionary act, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for you? You would be surprised at how few people actually believe that. Even prominent, even people who are heroes in our country reject that. People who have given their lives, even fighting for justice in our world today, and know what the Bible says, have rejected that idea. Martin Luther King Jr. rejected the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. He rejected the idea of the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection from the dead. He gave his life fighting for justice. And yet, unless he repented before he died, he had to face the justice of our Heavenly Father without an advocate standing for him. When you hear the message of the gospel and you reject it, you're firing your defense attorney. I don't need him. I'm just going to stand in front of the judge. I'm going to plead my case on my own merits. Now, if that's traffic court, maybe it's not such a big deal. But if you're evaluating your entire life before the perfect judge of the universe to fire your defense attorney who wants to give his life for you, that's class A foolishness. And so many of us do that. If that's you today, I hope that you don't feel beaten down and discouraged by this, but that you feel the invitation to new life, to forgiveness. Verse 2. He, that is Jesus, is the propitiation, one of those crazy words again, for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So propitiation is the idea of the turning away of the wrath by an offering. So in the Old Testament, when, when God set up the nation of Israel... So we, we spent a lot of time going through Genesis. Next book is Exodus that tells how the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt are led out of Egypt, you know, parting of the Red Sea, all that stuff, Ten Commandments. All of that happens in Exodus. After 40 years, he brings them into the land that he's promised them, and he gives them all kinds of instructions. He sets up a religious system that they practice in the desert, and they kind of perfect it then in the promised land. The religious system that he gives them provides a system for propitiation, right? So he recognizes they rebel, they break relationship with the one who rescued them out of Egypt, and there has to be some kind of propitiation, some kind of offering made to heal the relationship. And so he, he makes a system, a temporary system, where animal sacrifices are offered. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, there's a lot of blood there. I mean, we're talking about millions of animals over a couple thousand years that were given as sacrifices to temporarily patch up the relationship between God and the people of Israel. All of those sacrifices, the elaborate system that goes into it, the instructions about washing your hands as a priest and all the things that go into it, that is all a temporary holding pattern until we get to Jesus Christ 
the propitiation for our sins. This is, you guys may be familiar with, when Jesus died, that moment that he dies on the cross, what's that miraculous thing that happens about a quarter mile away? The temple curtain, the thing that separates that holiest place from the rest of the world, is ripped in two from top to bottom. That is, that is God the Father physically communicating that the Old Testament sacrificial system is done. Because Jesus is the propitiation, the sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God the Father, the just, perfect wrath. We think of wrath as just a negative thing. God is just and perfect in his wrath. Jesus is the sacrifice that turns that away from us. Let me read that again, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, not and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now that last part, there's a bunch of like theological debate that's wrapped up in there. We're not going to talk about that today. But let me tell you a little bit. That is not a message of universalism. He is not saying, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, therefore everyone is accepted by God, everyone is saved, everyone is going to heaven. That is absolutely not what he was saying. Think about the most famous verse that John ever wrote that Daniel quoted for us this morning, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten sons that ever, whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that everybody's in, you're all clear. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The other side of that coin is everybody who doesn't. So what John is saying there in the end of verse 2, Jesus died not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world, cannot mean a false gospel message of universal salvation. Here's one thing that it does mean, though. The things that divide us make no difference when it comes to the sacrificial death of Jesus paying for our sins. Man, woman, rich, poor, black, white, brown, olive, whatever your color is, whatever your nationality, whatever language you speak, are you completely ignorant and can't read or write, illiterate, or are you a you know, fancy pants college professor? Are you wealthy? Are you poor? Are you white collar, blue collar? Rap music, country music, or the weird way that they blend together and become neither today? We won't talk about that right now. But whatever these things that divide us are, John is saying those don't matter when we're talking about penal substitutionary atonement. We're talking about the propitiation that Jesus is the sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. Those things don't matter. Even the big dividing line throughout all of the Old Testament the Jewish people as the chosen people of God, and everybody else, the Gentiles. That doesn't matter. Now, Paul, in his writings, particularly Romans and Galatians, makes that point more clearly than anybody. But John is getting at it here. He's saying, it doesn't matter what your label is. It doesn't matter who your ancestors are. None of that Jesus' sacrifice is not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for the smart people. It's not just for the rich people. It's not just for the people of a certain skin color or language or anything. It's for everybody. 
the sins of the whole, all types of people, Jesus' death is sufficient to save any kind of person. That's one thing that he's saying. And that is really good news. If that was not true, if that dividing line of the Old Testament was still in place, I'm guessing that everybody, or almost everybody in this room, would basically be without hope. Because we're all on the Gentile side of things. And yet Jesus' sacrifice, as God in the flesh of a Jewish man, pays for the sins of all of us. Even those who are outside that chosen group. Now this, this message, this idea of, of Jesus' sacrifice for all kinds of people, all variations on humanity, runs counter to a story that our culture is trying to build right now. Our culture is trying to divide us in new ways along the lines of race and ethnicity. It was only a few years ago that everybody was trying to, uh, to, to not be racist. And now we have an increasing number of people who are being intentionally racist, but are calling themselves anti-racist. They're saying the most important thing about you, the thing that determines your success in life, your value as a person, how other people should treat you, the most important thing is the color of your skin and where your ancestors come from. We're going to call it anti-racism, but it's actually racism. The gospel message fights against that. It says no matter what your color is, your background is, your level of education, your language, any of that stuff, when you are in Christ, the most important thing about you is that fact alone. You are in Christ. And if you are in Christ here in this room, you have more in common quantitatively and qualitatively You have more in common with a Christian in a hut in the middle of Mongolia than you have in common with just a regular person here in Dark County who is not in Christ. The most important stuff about you is actually given to you as a gift when you become a Christian. This whole identity politics thing, it's all a sham. And it's fighting against the gospel. If you are in Christ, the most important thing about you is just that. You are in Christ. And so you could have a very different personality, different upbringing, uh, different education level, different music taste, different stage of life, all that stuff from other people in this room. And if they are in Christ, you guys have a commonality that is stronger, longer, eternal, longer lasting, eternal bond with other Christians because Jesus has made you new. That's really good news. So these two verses, they tell us some amazing stuff. Not only has Jesus given his life as a propitiation for sin as the whole world, every kind of person, but after doing that, He stands as the advocate for us who have been saved by Him, pleading our case, offering Himself as that substitute 
before the Father. We're going to close our service today by singing a song that Daniel's been working on this week. It's called Before the Throne of God Above. And it's, it's based on this idea of Jesus as the advocate. You can you know, picture heaven in your mind and God the Father on the throne and, and you as a guilty person stand before the throne and yet Jesus stands between you and the Father making relationship where before there was only enmity, a war. That's what this song is about. I hope today that you have heard clearly the gospel message, that you see it as the good news that it is. And I hope, I hope that you just marvel at this idea of advocacy and, and the propitiation of sins for all types of people. I hope you marvel at all that stuff. And I hope that next week you'll join us as we look at the second half of this and how it motivates us very specifically to love each other. Pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for these two verses. Jesus, thank you that you stand as our advocate. If we belong to you, we have the best defense attorney in the world. Jesus, I personally thank you for the way that you have forgiven my sins. You have washed me clean. I am undeservably now innocent before you, not because of what I've done, but because what you have done for me and how you've called me to trust in that. Lord, would you, would you work in this congregation? For those of us who, who have already stepped from death to life, would you help us to know with confidence that that is true of us, and that, that we have an advocate and that our sins have been forgiven? For those of us, Lord, who are investigating, asking questions, even, even working against the gospel message, Lord, please change their hearts. Help them to see the amazing, uh, free to us, yet costly to Jesus, gift of forgiveness, reconciliation. Jesus, we give you praise. We give you thanks. We give you honor as you stand as our advocate before the throne of God above. In Jesus' name, amen.